Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Happy holidays, everyone. We hope you're having a safe and healthy week. And maybe watching some basketball. The NBA season tipped off this week in empty arenas across the country, so we thought it would be a good time to revisit one of our favorite interviews of the year. That's right. We had fun with this one. You might know our guest from ESPN's Last Dance documentary, or maybe just as head coach of the Golden State Warriors. We're talking about eight-time NBA champion Steve Kerr. That's right. Basketball, politics, international affairs. We talked about it all with a guy who's had such a remarkable life and career. And when we spoke, it was a strange time for both Kerr and the Warriors. It was August. The team was basically shut down at home, watching other NBA teams compete in the league's bubble in Orlando. Yeah, they were part of the Delete Eight, as he said. And we really didn't know if or when this season was actually going to start. So we started by asking Kerr what life was like for him and the Warriors after the season was suspended back in March. It was really strange, um, you know, when, when the suspension happened. Um, it all seemed to happen pretty quickly. Although I have to tell you, my son, who got a uh, degree in, in public health from Berkeley, was telling me about it in January. And he kept saying, this is a really big deal. And I'm like, no, nah, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And he said, no, I'm serious. I, t- you know, I had to take two classes on epidemics and, and uh, our pandemics. And this, this could be really bad. And so when the suspension happened, um, you know, we kind of looked at each other and uh, over I, Zoom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and, uh, and then I thought, OK, well, you know, a few weeks and we'll be back at it. And yet um, we're still we're still out, uh, still waiting for life to resume to normal. How are you guys like coping with that as a team? I mean, are you trying to stay connected um, over, you know, virtually? I know there's been some maybe casual practicing, but um, especially at the beginning, I mean, is that something you're worried about is like losing that cohesion? Well, yeah, we're worried about it, but there's not a whole lot we can do about it. You know, we're, we're one of the eight teams. Um, we've, uh, we, we have been referred to as the delete eight uh, by, by many people. Uh, there's, uh, 20, 22 teams in Orlando playing in the bubble and eight of us who were not invited. So the delete eight is, uh, you know, we're all sitting at home watching everybody else play, but we are not technically allowed to practice uh, other than just individual workouts for players. So we have a kind of a strange situation that we've never faced before. And, 
our young players come into our practice facility and, and train um, individually with, with coaches. Our veteran players are scattered about um, and, and um, there's really nothing formal happening right now. We're trying to prepare for next year without really any kind of blueprint for how to do it. Well, and it looks like the, the league may not start until potentially March, right? If, uh, if in fact, they think that people, fans will be able to come then, how, how do you keep the, the team together? I mean, just emotionally and all that. I mean, this is a, a bizarre sort of off-season kind of situation. Yeah, we had a, a, a few uh, virtual calls early on um, and then a lot of phone calls in between and then, um, you know, go into the facility and maybe half the guys – are in the facility in, in our practice facility in the mornings, but most of our young guys are in there. And so, you know, you kind of um, end up randomly, you know, seeing guys and, and or, or, or touching base with them via phone uh, or email, text, but it's not the same. You know, we're used to being together as a group and doing everything together as a team. So we're just, um, you know, plugging away, doing our thing, and and hoping that there's some kind of a uh, a clear view of what next season will look like before too long. Yeah, I mean, I feel like for families, this is hard, right? Staying <laughs> connected during yeah. this time. I mean, one of the reasons that we wanted to bring you on the show, obviously, is that you have been very outspoken about politics. Um, you have a deep personal history, and we want to get into some of that in a bit. But I'm curious, um, you know, uh, baseball pitcher Sean Doodle. Doolittle recently talked about whether to bring back sports at all, saying that sports are the reward of a functioning society. And um, we've had conversations about like whether some of the protests that happened would have happened if we had all been distracted by sports or concerts. What's your view on that? Like, do you think that there's been a sort of political upside to this, uh, at least the, 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 the break at first? I do think that that a lot of the um, the protest and a lot of the movement has happened because of the quarantine, because of the suspension of life. Um, you know, we can't get wrapped up in our daily routines like we always have. You know, so you know when you when you sort of look back at the last decade, uh, and there's there's been so many instances that you think would have put us over the top. Uh, in some some form or fashion, um, you know, if you want if you want to talk about uh, racial uh, uh, violence, you know, Trayvon Martin, that could have happened. You know, we could have tipped the scales years ago with Trayvon Martin and many others. Uh, gun violence in general. I mean, Sandy Hook happened what seven eight years ago. You know, how did that not uh, tip the scales to, to where we all didn't just stop and say, wait a second. Um, somebody walked in and, and machine gunned down a bunch of kindergartners. That didn't stop us. Um, and so I think, I think because of COVID, because of the suspension, none of us were able to just sort of turn the other way and get back into our routines and do what human beings do, which is kind of return to your comforts and return to your family and friends and your job and you just immerse yourself in whatever you're doing, and because of that, we've uh, we've we've been opening our eyes up more and and been called to action, I guess. We um, 
they've seen the different leagues, uh, pro sports leagues, deal with these kinds of things very differently. The NFL, of course, was not hospitable, did not embrace Colin Kaepernick when he kneeled during the national anthem. He is, hasn't been able to get a contract with a team. And yet we've seen the NBA, you, LeBron James, uh, Greg Popovich, several warriors, including you know uh, Steph Curry and the warrior, man- warrior management, really outspoken in support of this racial justice movement. What do you think accounts for the difference in, you know, the leagues and especially, you know, why the NBA? Why has the NBA embraced this the way it has? Well, I think the NBA has always had great support from uh, the league management uh, right now from Adam Silver, but before that from from David Stern. uh, um, The the league has always uh, been supportive and, and felt like a partner when it comes to social issues and uh, protest. And, and so in the past, you know, anytime players or coaches have wanted to speak out about anything, uh, it came from a place of comfort. We didn't worry about, uh, you know, losing our job or, or being reprimanded. We, we felt supported. And I think that's been really helpful uh, for all of us. And now you're seeing it, I think the league Players, the league itself, the broadcast partners have really done a beautiful job of presenting these broadcasts. I don't know if you guys have seen any of these tributes, uh, but uh, some of the opens to the telecasts have been beautifully done uh, and, and are really powerful. They're, they're speaking really positive messages uh, to the public, so it's, it's inspiring. You know, but if you think back to, you know, we mentioned, uh, Marisa mentioned the last dance, you know, the, the Bulls, the team that you were part of. I mean, Michael Jordan was, you know, very apolitical for whatever set of reasons. I mean, is there something in the players themselves that you think has evolved? Yeah, that the to generational. The point, yeah. Generational or other uh, that, uh, you know, we, we do see people like the very top stars like LeBron and Steph Curry speaking out. I think it's generational. I think it's a sign of the times. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, in the 90s, uh, rarely did an athlete speak out. Um, but it was also a time of um, relative innocence, you know, and that's not to say that bad things weren't happening. Uh, but we didn't have social media, so we weren't being bombarded with all the bad news all day long. It was pre 9-11, so our country wasn't so divided. Um, there was a much better sense of well-being, I think, as a country in the 90s. Um, so even though there were opportunities to uh, to speak out, um, athletes in general didn't really say much. And, um, and I think that was the general climate in the country, too. Um, you, you just had a, a sense that things were healthier and it was easier to just go about your about your day. That may have been um, a matter of us all sort of being uh, a little bit blinded uh, by by the times too, because obviously you know, there were plenty of bad things happening, but it was just a different era. And, and, uh, and now people feel compelled to speak because uh, the times are calling for it. How do you think about when and, and how to speak out? I know last year you were asked about um, what was happening in Hong Kong and expressed some regret later that you hadn't been more supportive of the Houston Rockets general manager, but you've been very upfront on gun control um, and other issues. Do you weigh, I don't know, what you think you have more expertise in or just think about um, your own life experience and what kind of what moves you? 
Yeah, I try to stick with um, what moves me. And, and uh, you know, I lost my, my dad to gun violence uh, when I was 18. He was 52. Um, that uh, issue has been something that I've been very passionate about for a long time. And I want to say about five years ago, maybe four years ago, was the first time I spoke uh, openly and publicly about it. And that was the first time I really said much of anything uh, politically or publicly. And, um, and that sort of opened the door, I guess. Um, and, I, and I realize, I think, you know, I've realized over time that once you go down that path, um, you're going to be put in some uncomfortable situations and you have to be ready for everything. And you mentioned the Hong Kong um, issue last year. That was a really, really uncomfortable position to be in because uh, you know, China uh, has been a, uh, a partner in the NBA uh, and obviously across America with thousands of, of companies. Mm -hmm. And uh, so all of a sudden, you know, when the human rights issues are really being exposed, um, it, you know, you, and you're asked about it and you're part of the NBA, it's like, Oh, wait a second. And I was sort of deer in the headlights, you know, when I was asked about it. And, and I think it caught a lot of us by surprise and I handled it horribly. Uh, my, I regret my answer to this day. I sort of, you know, gave it no comment and then said something else. And it was, it was really embarrassing. Um, but that's part of the deal when you're in the public eye and you choose to speak out, you, you have to take that. Um, you have to understand that, you gotta be ready, and you you're you're gonna you're gonna screw up sometimes, and uh, we all do. All right. Well, we never do, but you know, some, <laughs> some sometimes others do. <laughs> all right. Well, you mentioned your dad. We're gonna come back in a moment and talk about him. We're gonna take a short break right now, and when we come back, we're gonna continue our conversation with Golden State Warriors head coach Steve Kerr. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, 
Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Happy holidays, everybody. Today we're revisiting our interview from August with Golden State Warriors head coach Steve Kerr. And Kerr had a lot to say about his life and career, his growing political voice, and how he talked about politics and racial justice with his players. The week we spoke with Kerr, the city of Beirut and Lebanon was in the news. There had been a terrible explosion that killed more than 200 people, the causes of which are still unclear. And Beirut is where Kerr was born, where he spent much of his childhood, and where his dad was tragically assassinated in 1984. So we asked him what it was like to see the city back in the headlines. Well, they were horrifying images. You know, they looked like a nuclear bomb went off. And, um, you know, we, we have uh, family friends there. My mom is still very close with uh, people who work at the university. Fortunately, it was uh, far enough away from the university that there wasn't major damage. But she told me that uh, some doors were blown off the hinges um, on campus. Uh, and and um, as I said, the, the, the campus was pretty far from the, the explosion. But, um, you know, Beirut was already in the midst of a horrible humanitarian crisis. The, the economy is a disaster. People are struggling already. And uh, so this uh, was just uh, brutal to, to happen on top of all that. So it makes me very sad. As you said, that's my birthplace. And, and um, we have a lot of family history there. Yeah, um, I was really struck because my fam- my mother's side is Armenian by your grandparents' history um, in the Middle East. They got on a boat, I think, and met there, sailed over across the world, I think, in 1919, and are credited with helping save, I think, like 10,000 orphans that had fled Armenia from the Turks. Was that a story, a reality that you grew up knowing or understanding? Uh, well, I, we grew up uh, knowing it. I don't know that we understood it, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, my grandfather wrote a book uh, about it and, and uh, you know, they were very modest people, so they never really spoke much about it. But, uh, but you know, we, we learned about it. And, and um, it, when you're young, you sort of t- just assume everything is normal. Um, oh, yeah, sure. You know, grandma and grandpa just, you know, they went overseas somewhere and ran an orphanage and saved a bunch of people like like everybody does that i guess you know <laughs> uh, it's been amazing though over the years i can't tell you how many uh people of armenian descent have come up to me um at arenas all over the nba and waving armenian flags or uh you know, just waving me down and telling me, thanking me for my grandparents' uh, service and, and even saying, you know, I, I wouldn't be alive right now if it weren't for your grandparents. Wow. It's incredible to hear these stories. And, uh, so it's something that, that my family and I are all obviously incredibly proud of. Yeah. You, uh, you, as you said, you were uh, born in Beirut. Uh, you spent your, some of your childhood there. Uh, you also spent time, I think, kindergarten in France. You went to junior high in Egypt, Cairo, Egypt. Uh, did you think of yourself? I mean, what did being an American mean to you, uh, being such an international kind of kid? 
Well, I think um, at the time, you know, when you're when you're young, you just you kind of just want to be with your your pals. And so I was always mad every time we went overseas. You know, I wanted to stay in Los Angeles, which was our home base, and and uh, just live my my normal life. But uh, it, it was um, I, I realized uh, later on it was the the education of a lifetime to be able to uh, to go overseas and live in different cultures and and go to international schools and meet people from all over the world. Um, and it really shaped my entire uh, worldview uh, for sure. So uh, I was really, really fortunate to, uh, to have that childhood and to be able to experience the things that I have. I mean, it's an interesting contrast, right? On the one hand, you're like a basketball obsessed kid. On the other hand, you're uh, jet sitting around to international schools. Um, And you mentioned your dad earlier. I want to talk a little bit about his impact on your life, because it seems like from what I've read, he was a real pacifist. He really believed in the ability of people to find peace. Um, I don't know. What was that? Were those conversations that you felt like you were having growing up or just sort of absorbing as part of that family? I think I was absorbing more than anything. You know, I was kind of the black sheep being the uh, the dumb jock of the family. You know, I had uh, my older two siblings, uh, both went on and got PhDs, um, you know, one from Stanford, one from Harvard. Um, there was a story about your mom introducing her kids and saying that we have two PhDs, an MBA and an NBA in the family. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, I was I was the uh, the anti-intellectual one in the in the group, but uh, I was always obsessed with sports. But uh, I always uh, was at the dinner table listening to the conversation, and and uh, so we always had so many uh, interesting people around. My my mom and dad liked to have barbecues in our backyard. Uh, my dad was a professor at UCLA, and he had a lot of colleagues who would come over, students. And we'd hear all kinds of different languages and, and meet people from all over. And, and uh, my dad, most of what I remember was talk of uh, the Middle East uh, peace situation because that, that was his passion. He was a professor of Middle East history and politics. So I remember, for example, uh, when uh, Begin and Sadat and, and Jimmy Carter uh, shook hands on the lawn of the White House and, and uh, signed the uh, Camp David Accords. And uh, that was like the greatest moment of my dad's life. I mean, that's what he had been dreaming of for so long. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I, I have so many memories like that of you know, watching the evening news um, and uh, hearing about what was going on in the Middle East and then hearing my dad and my mom comment on it and, and discuss what was happening. And I just, I just listened, really. Before you graduated from high school, I think your dad went to American University in Beirut, uh, and his predecessor had been he, to be president, and, and the predecessor had been kidnapped. How worried were you about him? And what were you, as a kid, what was your family told about the risks that he was facing going over there in this moment of such you know, war, really. Yeah, you know, I think um, we all sort of have a false sense of security uh, to us, you know, until something actually happens. You never really believe something's going to happen to you, even in the face of danger. Sometimes we, uh, um, you know, just ignore global pandemics and things like that. You know, you just you, you just sort of keep living your life and you don't really stop and, and, and think too much. And 
that, that job um, was my dad's dream job. Um, it had been his dream job since, uh, since he had been a, a grad student at the university there. He grew up on, on the campus uh, in Beirut. And, and um, so when the job was offered to him um, to replace uh, the, the, uh, the, the president uh, and the acting president was kidnapped, you know, we're all sitting there like, well, what, you know, what does this mean? You know, and, and uh, there had been multiple faculty members that had been kidnapped and our dad assured us he was going to be fine. And, and uh, again, it's just, you know, you look back and you, and that, you know, now it's, you think, well, you know, what were we doing? Like, what was, what could we possibly have been thinking? Um, but, you know, as I said, it was it was his dream job, and he felt good about uh, good enough about the political situation. He took when he took the job, he spent a year in New York, and let the let the political situation die down in Beirut until he felt safe, until the university felt safe enough for him to go over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so everybody thought that he'd be safe, but obviously he was not. I mean, I know you were already well on the path um, with basketball at that point. You were figuring out where to go to, or you were at Arizona State, I guess. Um, you had University started. of Arizona. Uh, University of Arizona. I'm sorry, not Arizona State. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't, just to be clear, we don't like Arizona State. <laughs> got it, got it. <laughs> um, so you were already in college, you were pursuing basketball, but I wonder, did that, I mean, is that a reason that you didn't get political until later? Do you feel like your dad's story and, and, and the grief and trauma from that made you want to just really focus on the game instead of all this other stuff? Yeah, I think so. And I, and I wasn't confident enough um, to, to say anything. I could barely give an interview at 18. You know, um, I, I marvel at these guys today who come into the NBA at 18 or 19 and are constantly giving press conferences and doing really well. You know, I remember at 18 stammering through my first interview on campus. And, and so, you know, at the time that was the furthest thing from my mind was discussing politically, but, you know, like most college students, I was really interested in what I was, what I was doing and uh, focused on that. And um, I really didn't become heavily interested and I didn't really start reading um, about world events and world politics extensively until later on in my life. And that's when I became much more involved. I'm wondering, you know, we're going to skip ahead a bit because we don't have a ton of time here. You had an extraordinary uh, career and run with a number of teams, including, of course, the Chicago Bulls and Michael uh, Michael Jordan. Watch The Last Dance if you haven't seen it. It's a terrific series. Uh, and then you come to uh, the Warriors in 2014-2015 and took over from Mark Jackson, the coach, and uh, the Splash Brothers were here. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, what again the politics what did what have you learned from the players that you've been around about politics about the experience of being black in this country and the kinds of issues that you're now on the front lines of talking about yeah i mean it's a it's a great question and and um you know one of the things that i felt really strongly about was that the best learning environments are, are those where everybody has a voice you know and 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 discussion is is um, really prominent and um 
and I really wanted to open things up and for our players to be uh, comfortable and confident speaking about anything, whether it was basketball or anything else. And, and so I tried to establish that early uh, with, with our staff. And, um, you know, it's, I think it took a little bit of time. You know, you have to get to know one another um, really well before people, I think, feel really confident and comfortable discussing matters of race and, and social division. But these last few years have been amazing. And um, some of our players uh, who I've connected with uh, have taught me so much. I mean, Andre Iguodala uh, and David West are, the two of them in particular are really well read on uh, African-American history. And so they've taught me, you know, I, I, I feel like my education taught me a lot of um, the good in, in black American history, uh, the achievements. And those two guys taught me a lot of the things that have been covered up, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and I'll never forget Andre Iguodala a couple of years ago saying, uh, coach, you ever heard of Black Wall Street? He said, no, I've never heard of Black Wall Street. He said, "Look it up, and we'll we'll talk about it tomorrow." And we and I came in the next day, and I was I was blown away. And we we talked about it, and I I had no idea that this whole black community existed in Tulsa and was uh, thriving and economically supporting one another, and then just was burned to the ground, and three hundred people were murdered. How, how are we not taught that, you know, in American history class? And um, David West, um, same, like incredibly well read. And we've had some some great conversations about politics and um, who, who the black community should be supporting in his, in his view um, to be president. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not talking about between Trump and Biden. I think <laughs> that train's left. <laughs> but I mean, between Biden and the other Democratic candidates while that was going on. And that was fascinating to me because it was, you know, it came from a completely different angle than the way that me as a 54-year-old white guy uh, thinking about it. So, yeah. Well, you can hear the music, and that means only one thing. It's not good. We're, we're out of time. But <laughs> Coach Kerr, thank you so much. Good luck with whatever comes next. We hope it's, we hope it's good things for you and the Warriors. You guys, thanks for having me on. You bet. That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers, Katie McMurrin, KCQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinny Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Stay safe, everybody. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.